Pettis. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. And you're in the Transporter Room. This week, very many things to talk about politics. We've got an unresolved election. We have two transgender political candidates who won their races. Plus, I've got a snippet of a new interview of the first Star Trek star who not only plays a transgender character, but he himself is trans. That's all coming up. Wow, trans people playing trans people in media. (laughs) What a revolutionary concept. About time. But first, let's introduce our guest, the star of ESPNW, as far as I'm concerned, the sports and culture writer, Katie Barnes. Setting coordinates and... Katie Barnes is on board. Katie, welcome to the Transporter Room. Hi, y'all. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So, Katie, you've written about transgender issues probably more than anyone else at ESPN. Tell tell me what it is that um, fascinates you about this topic, about the inclusion issue, and how um, much either pushback or acceptance you've found for these kind of stories at ESPN. Uh, you know, for me, I think it's really important to really look at our sporting culture, um, and I'm particularly interested in issues around gender broadly um, and how we think about gender, how we decide um, how we're segregating our sports um, and the science and what that means. And I think for me, as somebody who is queer and non-binary, I found that there was just a lot of misunderstanding around what it means to be trans, what it means to be young and trans, uh, what it means to be young and trans and want to play sports. Um, And so I focused a lot of energy on uh, trying to tell some of those stories and humanize issues that I think are important to our broader community um, in a way that is, I don't know, I would say approachable uh, for an audience that perhaps uh, would not otherwise be reading about policy as it affects trans people. Um, and I would say that I haven't really had any issues at ESPN at all. I've actually never um, been told that I couldn't write about a trans person. Every single story that I've pitched on trans people has been greenlit. Um, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, especially because I I do think that the work is uh, very impactful and important and, uh, frankly, uh, not enough people write about um, our community uh, when it comes to sports, Um, uh, really, frankly, probably outside of the work that I do, uh, which is quite shocking to me and continues to be. How much has your journey in finding your truth, finding yourself, and also becoming a journalist, how has that affected – how has that affected – the way you go about reporting, how has that affected the way you go about the craft? Well, I think, you know, I'm somebody who's one deeply community oriented. Um, I find a lot of strength uh, from uh, my community in terms of um, the identities that I carry and wanting to represent uh, those communities well. Um, And so that is, I think, very important to me, both as a person um, but then has, of course, become a foundational part of who I am as a reporter and a writer. Um, but then I also, you know, I really write for connection. Um, it's a big part of who I am in terms of the empathy that I bring to the job, um, but also in how I approach the, the actual writing. 
um, of the stories that I pursue um, and how I build rapport with subjects. Um, all of that is really important to me. And so I think it probably shows in the work itself, but those two things uh, are really, I think, you know, they really undergird everything that I do. You use they, them pronouns. And in your uh, profile on your website, you said, don't worry, my parents don't get it either. <laughs> Can you talk to us a little bit about um, the conflict um, between uh, those of us who use they, them pronouns and people who claim it's either invalid or they don't get it? How do you tackle that? Well, that's so funny. I should actually probably update my website. My parents are much better now. <laughs> like, Good for them. I've, actually been, I've been very heartened um, at how they have uh, really embraced uh, using my correct pronouns and making and like really trying, um, even though frankly, I didn't necessarily ask them to. Um, I think, you know, for me, obviously like there is people, there people have pushed back around uh, using what is typically um, referred to as a plural pronoun with a singular person. Um, but the reality is, is that the usage of uh, singular they, them has been around for a really long time, like literally the 14th century. Uh, we use it in English all the time um, in terms of you're know, saying, like, oh, whose umbrella is that? Oh, that's theirs. Like, we do that all the time. And so the fact that I think, I think there's just in general a, a lack of understanding um, in terms of you know, really just knowing what it means to be non-binary. You know, I, I think about the conversations that I have had with my mother over the years, even before I started identifying that way. Um, you know, she just couldn't quite wrap her head around it. You know, she was like, okay, but there's like male and female, and you're saying that there are these group of people that like don't identify with any of that. And, you know, I think for some people, it takes a little bit of time. Um, and now it's like, you know, I talked to my mom and, yeah, she said to me um, a few months ago, she's like, well, you've always been non-binary. And I'm like, that's actually true. <laughs> um, and so for her to recognize that, I think is really important. And so what I try to do in the conversations that I have with people is, um, you know, I have boundaries for myself that I think are appropriate and everyone has different boundaries. Um, I can probably tolerate uh, a higher threshold of misgendering than a lot of people. Um, and there's, that doesn't make me um, better, doesn't make anyone else worse. Um, I think, you know, so we all have our boundaries. I think we need to communicate those boundaries to folks um, as we look to hold them accountable. Um, and I just try and be as approachable as I can and as educated as I can and answer as many questions as I can while also gently um, and sometimes firmly uh, pushing back on some misconceptions about non-binary identity um, and who I am in general, if that makes sense. It does. And I'm glad you like to ask questions because we do too, <laughs> being <laughs> journalists. Um, I want to follow up on something you just mentioned. You said your mom told you you've always been non-binary. Can you give me an example of that? I'd like to hear more about how you were non-binary at a younger age. Yeah. You know, I, uh, so for context, you know, I grew up in rural Indiana, uh, really, really small town, like a town of 1300 people. And, I have always been interested in um, more masculine things. You know, and when I was little, you know, every, anyone who's assigned female at birth who plays in the dirt is like labeled a tomboy, right? So that 
wasn't necessarily shocking, but, you know, my parents always allowed me the room to express myself um, however I wanted. And so for me, when I was like six years old, I ended up cutting my hair really short. Um, and then I started wearing exclusively clothes that I bought in the boys section. And, you know, my mom would walk over to the JCPenney boys section with me and help me pick out my Arizona jeans. And, you know, I wore khakis and sweaters to church. I didn't wear dresses except on Easter. I had a special Easter dress for that. And that was like fine with me. Um, but most of the time, you know, I, you know, expressed gender in a very masculine way. Um, and did so all the way through early elementary school up until late elementary school. Um, and when I stopped doing that, it wasn't because my parents ever asked me to change. Um, I actually just felt a lot of peer pressure and societal pressure uh, from, you know, just where I grew up. And I think also being uh, black in that area as well, you know, there's, I mean, there's maybe like a handful of black kids, um, like in the whole town. And, you know, I didn't want to stick out any more than I already did. And I was starting to get made fun of. And so I made some changes. Um, but my parents had always have always been very encouraging of me um, and knew well before I did that I was queer and were supportive of that um, ever since, you know, I was really like six years old. Well, from one from one Midwesterner to another, I salute you. I'm a far Midwesterner <laughs> kid myself. Um, and much much like you i found it i found a sense of home in this craft in journalism what made what pushed you to become a sports writer where did it start for you um it was actually a complete accident <laughs> um i studied history and american studies and russian studies actually in college um and so i wrote a lot i wrote a lot of fan fiction actually which is pretty funny and then a lot of term papers and so the feedback I had gotten was that I was, you know, a serviceable writer, um, like mechanically, I had good foundation. And I was in graduate school for higher education, actually. And uh, I ended up starting to write at feministing.com by like happenstance. Um, and I was writing a sport, a weekly sports and pop culture um, column there. And it was, you know, blogging and like, I had all these takes that I had built up and I've loved sports my whole life. And so I wanted to write about all of the things that I love. And so I wrote a weekly column. And, um, you know, as I was wrapping up grad school, I decided that I didn't want to go into higher ed administration. I wanted to pursue something different. And everyone told me that I wrote well. And so I thought I would end up in communications. Um, I actually really thought I would end up in communications at Nike. And that was like kind of what I wanted to do but I ended up uh, applying for a position at ESPN as a digital media associate, which is uh, a program that no longer exists, unfortunately, but it was essentially a year-long fellowship where I rotated through different departments. And I was hired in August of 2015, um, really on the strength of uh, my work at Feministing, actually. And I met Allison Overholt, um, who was the editor-in-chief of ESPNW at the time. Her role has since expanded uh, quite considerably. Um, and she told me to pitch her, and so I did. I wrote my first column on um, American Ninja Warrior, actually. Um, and then I did a rotation with W, um, and I kept writing on the side. And, you know, I got hired full-time in uh, early June of 2016. And the rest is sort of history. 
with that in mind, this year, this year, even through this pandemic, you wrote two, two pieces that, in my mind, very important pieces to be in the sporting discussion. One, one, your piece in June over the battle over Title IX, the whole debate over trans participation in high school athletics, and mm-hmm. you wrote, you wrote what I what I see as the definitive timeline and series and series of works on Maya Moore's struggle on mm-hmm. Maya Moore on Maya Moore's struggle to free to free that man out of um out of prison what what were some of the challenges involved in covering those stories in in terms of getting to the crux of of those stories and also dealing with what we're all dealing with since March which is this global pandemic what were the challenges what were the struggles but also what were the joys in bringing these yeah. and bringing stories to light. So, you know, I guess I'll talk about the Maya Moore story first. Um, you know, that piece was a labor of love. Um, and it was really challenging. Um, you know, I spent 10 months uh, following Maya and going to Missouri um, and, like, just following that court case. And I think one of the hardest things about it um, as a writer was just it, all of the emotion. Uh, it was an extremely emotional time um, for Maya and for uh, the people around her. Um, and then, frankly, you know, the piece, as I kept reporting it, ended up turning into a write-around. Um, I don't, like, unless, like, you really read between the lines, and I'm actually very proud of this, I don't think it reads as a write-around, uh, but I only asked Maya about four questions for that piece. I was not granted an interview at all. Um, and so over the course of 10 months, I asked her four questions. And um, that made it a unique challenge in terms of not only did I need to be familiar with what I was seeing as a reporter, um, but in order to fill the gaps in the reporting with Maya's voice, and so it didn't feel like she was absent from the piece, um, I needed to be familiar with everything that she said. And so for 10 years, it was 10 years, excuse me, for 10 months, um, I pretty much just lived and breathed Maya Moore. And uh, that can also be really tiring. Um, and, of course, not nearly as tiring as the battle that she faced and that she waged in order to get Johnson out of prison. Um, so, you know, I'm certainly not going to say, well, was me. Um, but, you know, the task of reporting it, uh, instead of getting easier over time, I think it actually got much harder. Um, but the joy in terms of publishing it and seeing it resonate and being able to amplify a story that I think is one of the most important stories uh, of the year uh, was really rewarding. Um, because one of the things that I actually found to be flabbergasting was I was the only member of the national media that was in those courtrooms. Um, and there was only one other time, really, that there was even local media there. Like, I was just not challenged in terms of uh, people going to the place where these conversations were happening and reporting around Maya. Um, and I actually thought that was a bit of a travesty. Um, if, this, if she were Steph Curry, that wouldn't have been the case. Uh, everybody would have been wanting this story. Everybody would be crowding those courtrooms. And she would have received a, just an astronomically uh, higher level of media attention and coverage for what she did. Um, and she deserves that. Um, and so to deliver a piece of that in the form of, you know, a really big, long-form article that got a lot of attention, um, you know, I, I felt as a person who cares about amplifying uh, narratives and stories about women, um, I felt a lot of joy around that part of it. 
Um, and it was actually interesting because since almost all of the reporting was done, like I came back from Missouri on March 10th, right before the world kind of stopped. And so the reporting itself uh, for the piece was done before, like well before, um, you know, publishing of course in June, but it wasn't really affected by the pandemic. Um, it kind of, I got it in right under the wire. Um, and with, you know, the Title IX story, uh, for me, you know, uh, writing about transgender athletes, especially at the high school level, is something that I really um, focus on. Um, and I had, I was lucky enough uh, to go to the state championships in February, and so I could get some scenes. But then the pandemic really actually uh, limited what I was able to do with that piece. Um, that piece was uh, supposed to be much more in depth. I really, I honestly really thought I was going to end up um, filing like a 10,000 word draft after I got to do everything I wanted to do with it. So I was really disappointed that I didn't get to report it the way that I wanted to because of, um, because of COVID really. Um, but then, you know, being able to sort of piece together these things and really, you know, fall upon my own sourcing and um, the knowledge that I have about Andrea and Terry and what's been happening in Connecticut. Um, I published my first piece about Andrea in uh, June of 2018, late May of 2018. And I just really never stopped reporting it. Um, and so I've really lived and breathed uh, what's happened in Connecticut um, over the course of these last like four years. And it's ongoing. I'm working on a book about a similar topic. And so I'm just always thinking about Connecticut. And I think that allowed me to get that piece out um, in a way that I was really proud of. Um, even though the pandemic really disrupted my ability to report it. I, I agree. And it's debilitating how, you know, the COVID-19 has basically um, put handcuffs around us in terms of how we do our jobs. Um, I, I would say that the three of us are very lucky to have um, been able to talk to Andrea and Terry. Uh, Terry's sort of fallen off the radar lately um, after high school. Andrea and I still talk, and I know she's decided to not pursue athletics in college, but I still hope for Terry that there's some future for her because what an athlete they both are. I wanted to ask you about another kind of athlete you write about. You write about um, the UFC a lot. You write about um, uh, Amanda Nunez in your June story. And, you know, I've had a challenge personally with Amanda because as impressed as I am at her uh, being out and lesbian and being a champion, there's a lot of transphobia there. And it's not just limited to her. It's pretty much embedded. And I was wondering what you think about reporting on a sport where transphobia sort of like is part and parcel of, of, of uh, everyday um, competition. Yeah, you know, I haven't talked to Amanda specifically about um, trans athletes. I think that, and this goes back to what I said about why I'm committed to writing stories about trans folks in sports, is that a lot of folks think that the science is somewhere that it's not. Um, and there's a lot that still needs to be known. And I think when we talk about transgender athletes, it gets particularly complicated in combat sports. Um, and, at, well, in combat sports and strength sports, um, particularly when we talk about transgender women. Um, and so the sport itself, obviously, I think, had a very strong reaction to Fallon Fox. Um, and 
there hasn't really been um, enough, I think, of interrogation of like what what was true about that and what wasn't. I'm like, listen to Joe Rogan talk about it, and that like you know, it's like Fallon with like some mythical creature with like boulders for fists. And <laughs> oh, like, oh, yeah, oh, Rogan, yeah, I you know. know, you know what I'm saying? And it's, oh, and it's I, like, I constantly like, see oh. the tweets. She crushed a woman's skull. Well, yeah, supposed to. <laughs> A lot of that. And, and you know, I think there's a reality of, like, you know, Fallon, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong on the dates, but I think, you know, Fallon um, first came out publicly, like, in 2012. Yeah, I, uh, I think he was outed in 2013. Yeah. Like, outed so, in 2012 and then, and then came out on her own, yeah. Yeah, and so, like, I mean, a lot has changed in many ways. Um, I also think, and this may be somewhat unpopular, I also think that because the science is unsettled, that the science may settle in a place that those of us who uh, would prefer trans inclusion um, in sport may not particularly like. And I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know what that's going to mean, um, I think, particularly in strength and combat sports. Um, I frankly just don't know enough. And so, you know, as I'm continuing to report in this space, um, I always want to know more and I always ask questions about like the legitimacy of bone density as a real problem, um, you know. And as we learn more about the ways in which hormones affect um, bodies physiologically and specifically, and athletes specifically, um, depending on when they transition, like I think all of those things are just giant question marks that we need to know more about um, before we can, I think, actively, um, I would argue, uh, push for specific policy. Um, but yeah, those are my broad thoughts about it. I think it doesn't always come up in the way that I report on the UFC because usually um, I'm talking about specific fights and frankly, um, people don't really talk about Fallon that much anymore. Yeah. I mean, I figure like this Fallon's last fight was six years ago and Mm -hmm. they're still hanging on and they're still hanging on to it. Um, that kind of ties into what. I, I want to ask as far as not too long ago, we talked to Helen Carroll, Car- uh, the former head mm-hmm. sport director from the Nat from the national center for lesbian rights. And yeah. Helen, we had, way back. yeah. And yeah, Helen has kind words to say about you as well. And I, I've, I asked Helen this question. I'm going to ask you as well, because Helen right now is working towards the next phase, which is, how do we bring how do we bring non-binary competitors into sport? How do we include? In your mind, what could that look like? What do you think it may look like? That's a really great question. Um, and I'm not entirely sure. I think the one thing that I have settled on um, that I personally believe is that I, I don't really think that sex segregation in sport before puberty is necessary. I think we often segregate way too young. Um, I think it's better for kids of all genders um, to be participating together up until it doesn't make sense for that to happen. And I think that means like past nine and 10 years old. Um, I think that's better for, uh, frankly, people assigned male at birth to understand that people that are assigned female at birth can beat them in sports. I think it's good for non-binary kids um, to not have to be placed in situations where uh, just the gender overload is just too much. I think it's great for people of binary trans identities as well. 
um, in terms of not necessarily having such a, um, a difficult gendered experience, perhaps in an activity that they really enjoy. Um, beyond that, I haven't really settled on what that looks like. It's one of the things I'm asking myself now. It's one of the things I'm reporting now um, and talking to people about. I, you know, we do have um, two non-binary athletes that are publicly out who are competing at the professional level in um, Quinn and Leisure Clarendon. Um, and, you know, we've seen um, other athletes at the collegiate level, I think of G. Ryan, who is a really highly regarded swimmer at the University of Michigan. Um, and I don't, I don't think it's a coincidence that all those people were assigned female at birth. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, these conversations are coming to women's sports first. Um, I don't know what that means as somebody who greatly loves women's sports um, and who also doesn't believe in a gender binary uh, that created them. <laughs> so I am personally conflicted, um, and I don't really think – I mean, I know I'm not necessarily answering the question. I'm just trying to be honest um, about the conflict <laughs> okay. that I'm experiencing as I'm trying to figure it out as somebody well, who's non-binary. So well, I got an idea. Well, well, Katie, I got an idea. You get you get NBA 2K21, I'll get it. We'll fight over it on my WNBA. How about that? I'm I'm always down for that. <laughs> if you want to play pong, I'm up for that. Um, I'm sort of old school, but I will tell yeah. you, trans and non-binary people I find are the most introspective members of society. We spend more time thinking about stuff like this than the average cis person who just wakes up and says what do you mean what gender do I identify with? Of course I'm so-and-so. And because of mm -hmm. our exploration of ourselves, I think that makes us um, a very important and valuable part of this whole conversation of, you know, where do we belong? Where do we fit in? Katie, I am so delighted that you took time out of your busy day today to join us in the transporter room. I hope you'll come back again, especially when this COVID pandemic is over. Yeah. Oh, yes, well... We might be waiting a long time for that one, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> well, in the meantime, right. we can both hey, we can both share some fan fiction. I can only hope. Oh my God, absolutely not! I am retired. That stuff is deleted off the internet. Do not go <laughs> right no, I haven't done fan fiction since I was young either. I know, I know. My I'm um... still do see. I'm still doing it. Uh, okay, y'all okay. well, well, both well, do good it. for you. You're both making me feel out of place because I'm still doing. It. Carly, I'll volunteer to be your editor if you want me to read. I will. Thank you, Katie. Okay. Um, Thank you. Really you would mind that. set coordinates for the ESPN mothership in Bristol, Connecticut. Beamer on back. Beaming Katie back. Katie, you always have an o o welcome here. You always got an open invitation. I appreciate it. Thank you both. Well, that was great. I was really impressed by them. I'm so glad that we were able to get a little bit of insight into not only their background, but their craft. I really feel like Katie Barnes is sort of like a uh, a person I want to emulate in terms of my own writing. I second that. I mean, but then again, they were a journalist of the year. So it's not surprising. There's a lot fine. of, yeah, there's a lot of excellence going there. And I can tell you, I enjoy, I enjoy reading Katie Barnes. The reportage on many issues has been top drawer. And I really think that, I mean, it just shows once again, why you need, a strong, healthy fourth estate in this country so that stories like the ones that Katie has been writing about get out there. 
because the these are some important the stories. They had to be the only national reporter covering this important story about wrongful imprisonment. Yes, I mean, that is a story. I mean, people talk about, especially in sports, people talk about you want to see these sports stars going beyond the box scores, going beyond the field. Field. Here's one that did, and y'all and a lot of you missed the story except for Katie Barnes. Well, just great. We, I, I know the pandemic is still with us and will be for some time, but I really do look forward to inviting them back. Coming up, Carly, oh, there's that sound. We've got transgender victory across the country, at least two. I think there might be one more. Candidates for political office emerging victorious on election day. And my exclusive interview with Ian Alexander, the Star Trek star who's transgender playing a trans character. It's coming up next on the Transporter Room. Stay with us. And we're back. Carly, Webb, and I are in the transporter room, and so are you. Carly, have you been watching the election? Yeah. I'm surprised I'm still sober watching it. (laughs) I admit I did go out with the girls, and we had a couple of drinks. A couple of drinks. And then I came back and had another couple of drinks. (laughs) You know, it's the Irish condition. What can I tell you? But I will say it's... That thing they warned us about, the red mirage, it's not necessarily the end. We haven't lost yet. (laughs) No. Well, I'll just put it this way. To me, I shouldn't be shocked at what I saw, but it's still a little bit off-putting what I saw. Um, To think that even after all the things that have happened in this country, 230,000 people dead due to this pandemic. Um, the the movement we've been seeing in the streets, the, the gracelessness and classlessness of this administration for the last four years, and yet we're going into overtime. Yeah, but it was not the first time. 2000, 2004, 2000 and... 12 we had other elections that took a while to yeah but 2000 but here's the difference don back then 2000 was about 2000 you could make a case and say there is legitimate political di- there there is a difference and it was about political philosophies it was about more about an issue in 2000 and in a sense it was about issues in 2004 even though i felt in 2004 it maybe it should have gone the other way and mm. every close election in the last hundred years, it's been a matter of issues. 1916 was about peace or war. 1960 was about the direction of the country as we head into a next future. It was about civil rights. It was about things such as space and how do we deal with the Cold War, those sorts of things. This, to me, is not about those things. And yet it, it isn't about those things politically. It's about who we are as a country. And what kind of country are we going to be? Because to me, there's only two choices. We're either a multicultural, multiracial democracy that works, or we're a white nationalist police state. There is no other choices outside of those two, as far as which way this nation will go. And the mere fact that it's gone into overtime scares me about this country. I I hear you. 
I, I will tell you what I heard this morning that really upset me. There were a lot of white anchors and analysts talking about how uh, the Cubans in Florida let down Biden or how the black vote didn't turn out in this particular part of Florida. And then Jason Johnson came on. You know, he's an, well, I'm going to let that phone go. He's an HBCU political science professor, and he often talks on the uh, MSNBC. And I love the fact that he said this. If every black person and every Latinx person voted for Biden, it still comes down to all the white people who looked at what happened with the last four years, the pandemic, the racism, the attempts to eliminate our health care, all of the things that Donald Trump did. And they said, oh, I want four more years of that. They're the ones to blame, if anything, if Trump were to win or if Trump uh, I mean, Trump won Florida, but let's not pile on the marginalized folks as if they have to carry Biden's water. Biden had to win white people because they're the majority and they are the ones who are voting for Trump. And in fact, I'm looking at the tweet right now and I heard Jason Johnson say that. And to me, that's what it comes down to. And that was the thing I told people here in Connecticut, um, because one thing I'm have, I mean, Auntie General Monica Roberts said it best. You want a revolution? F start by firing every Republican. And I will fully admit, I saw it. It made me happy to give the stink eye to a group of Republicans at my polling station. Yes. On, on Election Day. It felt good. It felt good to vote no on all their candidates. It felt good to vote for a Bobby Sanchez in my in my state rep in my state rep district who's going to Hartford. It felt good to vote for Rick Lopez, one of the few Democrats who called out the heinous action of the Connecticut Republicans to use Terry Miller and Andrea Yearwood and demonize them to raise campaign cash. It felt good to vote no to them. It felt good to vote against them. It also feels good to see that Sarah McBride was elected. Yes. Sarah McBride is the first state senator who is identified as out transgender in the entire United States. She's the highest ranking transgender lawmaker in the country. Congratulations, Sarah. So proud of you. I must think she must. I, I really admire her. I remember the speech she gave at the Democratic National Convention, oh, wow. and I, I really admire her. I hope she continues in the game and really moves up in the game. You might get your dream job done being the pre press secretary for a President McBride someday. Yep, just um, give, it, give it eight years. Uh, eight also, years. A, also, a note to, also a note to Posey Parker and all those British turfs. Two years ago, you went to Sarah McBride's office to harass her. Yeah. How you like her now? That's all <laughs> I got to say. Also, a special shout out to another another woman out there and this is in the hinterlands no less this is in my old stopping grounds in the midwest stephanie stephanie byers congratulations for a retired high school teacher won a house seat won a house seat in kansas native trans out kansas elected congratulations that's fantastic and then we've got vermont let me just call up her name to make sure I get it wrong. It, right. It's Taylor. And here it is. Taylor Small. 
She is a new representative for the Vermont House of Representatives. Uh, uh, Winooski, Vermont, a graduate of University of Vermont. And that's fantastic. And it just shows we're chipping away. And I do want to give a good friend a shout out, even though she did not win. Cassandra Martineau, Greens Party candidate, Connecticut Congressional District 2, didn't win, didn't win but ran an issues-based campaign, got herself in a debate, showed out in that debate, and was able to win enough votes to keep Greens Party ballot access. And I know how a lot of people feel about third parties, but my attitude is we need a lot of voices in the ring. We need as many voices in the ring, especially. And she was the only voice who talked about things such as climate change. Yeah. Something that I felt didn't get talked about enough in this campaign. She's talking about things like health care for all, something that both parties tried to run away from, Mm -hmm. but this pandemic shows kind of need it. So, Overall, though, but overall, though, it was good. It's good to see more of ours. It's good to see trans people in government. It's good to see more non-binary people in government. It's good to see the first black gay male representatives yes. sent to Congress. Yes, I, I mean, I. It's good yeah, to see. I mean, for all for all the things that, even for all the roadblocking that the reactionaries want to do, that the Steve Bannons of the world want to do. This country is moving in an inclusive direction. And it's something that a good mentor of mine, Janice Booth, always told me. The real reason why you're seeing what you're seeing and a lot of reasons why you're seeing the retrenchment is the fact is those who are involved in exclusion and retrenchment, they're losing and they know they're losing. And this is the last shot at the buzzer for them. This is the death rattle for them. Every Sarah McBride confirms that. And uh, in addition to uh, the people you've mentioned and I've mentioned, there's also another person I just found, uh, Jabari Brisport, the first LGBTQ person of color elected to the New York State Senate. Billy Jean King just uh, tweeted that out, so I think that's fantastic. And And there's one one more I want to throw in. There's one more I want to throw in there. Well, and again, and again, it shows that Hey, even in the play, even in it, it shows in flyover country, the the evolution is happening. Mari Turner in Oklahoma, black Muslim non-binary, elected to the state house in Oklahoma. That's Here's Oklahoma. David Ortiz of Colorado is the first openly bisexual person elected to the Colorado General Assembly. Like I said, slowly but surely, it is happening. The arc of the universe is long. It does bend towards justice. But we've got to be a part of making sure that bend happens. We have to be the one pushing it. There's another black gay congressman, Mondaire Jones, who's going to represent New York 17th. I think both I think both who, who went through or came from New York State, uh, in fact, came from, the, came from districts within the New York City metro, but again, it's hap- I mean, slowly but surely it's happening. And and don't and despite what a certain president of the United States said, this th- it is not over. There's still a oh, lot no, of no. count left. Still a oh, lot of count left. I'm gonna read I'm gonna read what Stacey Abrams tweeted. Keep calm. Be patient. Allow local elections officials to do their jobs. What is most important isn't the speed of the count. It's that every eligible vote is counted. Americans made their voices heard in record numbers. Their votes must be counted. 
I'll say I'm going to stay on the case to make sure that happens. And Dawn, I know you will as well. Absolutely. The other thing I'm working on is a piece for Forbes.com tomorrow. It's my second interview with a Star Trek star of Star Trek Discovery. Blue Del Barrio was the first non-binary Star Trek star playing a non-binary character. Now it's Ian Alexander, the first transgender actor in a recurring role playing a transgender character. What's interesting, as you'll hear in a second, is that Ian Alexander auditioned for the role of Adira and didn't get it. And here's Ian talking about that. So they they sort of sort of shaped shape shifted um, this character uh, into um, what became Gray. And when they originally um, told me, they were like, "Okay, so we we are not." um saying yes to you for Adira but don't worry we still want to have you on the show we still would love to um see you play this role of Grey um he's going to be a trill he's going to be you know um sort of like Adira's partner in crime um and I just was fully on board I was like yes Speaking as an older transitioner, I can only say how jealous we all are that you have this wonderful future ahead of you, but I'm so excited to live vicariously through you. Um, I, I do a little podcast called The Trans Sporter Room, and we were just curious, do you have any interest in sports whatsoever? I, I'm not a sports person, unfortunately. I, <laughs> I had to ask. You're a fashionista. Thank you for asking. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit more of a um, theater gay than a sports gay. <laughs> well, you know, well, you know, Ian, sports and theater kind of work well together because to me, sport <laughs> is theater. Oh, it, it's a wonderful interview. And I hope you'll read it tomorrow on Forbes.com and watch either early tomorrow morning or during the day or tomorrow night. Star Trek Discovery on CBS All Access every Thursday just amazed that we have come so far finally to have a recurring non-binary character, recurring transgender character. And like last week, you're not going to discover their identities right away because that's not the first thing we do either, right? Carly, you don't walk up to somebody and say, hi, I'm transgender. Oh, and by the way, my name is Carly. It's the last or fifth or sixth interesting thing about us, right? In In a sense, yes. Very much so. Um, but but you see, that's the beauty. But you see, that is the beauty of this. It comes out in the character as you get to know the character, the same way that that all those things come to light as you get to know a person. And I also like the fact that you have a non-binary character played by a non-binary by a non-binary performer. You have a trans character written as a trans character performed by a trans performer. That level of representation matters. Absolutely. They're setting an example. No more trans face in Hollywood, please. Oh, Carly, what a great show. I have been excited talking to you. Um, it's today. It's going to be published. So um, let's cross our fingers that when we meet next week, we'll have something we can talk about in terms of the outcome of the election. Well, I can tell you in a lot of ways, It may be a few weeks before we really get to the derm of this, but to everyone out there, I'd like to say, again, the arc of the universe is long, but it will bend towards justice if we put our backs into it and help in the bending. Live long and prosper, Carly. 
steady as she goes. See you next week. See you next week. Bye.